Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbacher, the director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. And this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue. And finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. This month's topic is prison ministry. This week, we'll be talking about humanity on death row. Let's talk now with this week's guest. Will you please introduce yourself? My name is Lyle May, and I am on death row and have been since March 1999. I've been incarcerated since July 10th, 1997, 19 years old. Now I'm 42. Uh, I'm a writer. I've been engaged in correspondence program through Ohio University for the last decade or so. And have been doing my best to create proximity between the public, the people that incarcerates, through my writing and public speaking. Okay, Lyle. Well, thank you again so much for spending time with us today. So, do you want to share a little bit about just about your childhood? A little bit. Let's so our listeners can just hear a little bit about what is Lyle like. What was it like to grow up? Well, I grew up in Brunswick, Maine, a coastal town in Maine, uh, southern Maine, actually maybe 30 minutes above Portland, and my family is Catholic. My mom taught Sunday school, uh, CCD classes, actually, and we went every Sunday. Both I and my siblings were all altar servers and attended school as we were supposed to, at least until you know I became a teenager, and then I ended up getting involved with the wrong kind of people. I had a lot of drug problems and, and mental health issues and ended up dropping out of school. That was probably the first of many, many mistakes that led to where I am now. What kind of social supports do you wish had been there for you when you were growing up that were not? I think more than anything, I needed a mentor. Somebody not necessarily too many years older than me, but certainly somebody who could have stepped into the role of saying, hey, you know, I've been where you've been. I I know what you're going through. This is what you need to do to overcome it. I didn't have that, even though I had uh, older siblings, they weren't necessarily there to help me do that. And I, I don't blame them for that, certainly, but there should have been somebody within the school system or even within the church who could have fulfilled that role, you know, seen some of the issues that I was having and potentially stepped in and said, hey, let me help you. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your childhood experiences with the juvenile detention centers and what programs or supports do you wish had been there as well for you when you were going through them? When I was in the Maine Youth Center in 1994 and 1995, there were not a whole lot of programs for juvenile offenders. There was school, of course, and there were the basic NA and AA programs, but other than that, there were no transitional programs or, or job training, so to speak mostly because I was what's called a hold for court, somebody waiting to be processed in the court system, either into rehab or group home or for long-term confinement. There was really nothing. They forced you to get a GED, and you could read some old abandoned copies of National Geographic, and that was it. In between that space, there was a lot of abuse, both physical and, and psychological, from staff. And it was a scary place, a scary time, and most of us were just concerned with getting out, never mind about staying out. All right, so now I 
I think you said it was about 22, 23 years now. So you spent most of your life actually, right? In prison. Yeah. So if you could live life again, if you could go back now, what do you think you could have done differently? Well, it's a, a, a big question. First and foremost, it would have been staying in school and completing my high school diploma. From there, it would have been college. I certainly would have completed an undergraduate degree. I, I feel like I would have gone on to complete a master's or at least consider law school. I don't think it would have been out of the realm of possibility to have done a little bit of military service because my dad, he was in the Navy for 21 years and my brother also was in the Navy. And those were certainly influences in my background. And I felt like over time that those were things that I could have done differently uh, that would have seriously impacted my future and what course it took. So you said you were raised Catholic and you were even an altar server for a while in your life. How has your faith shaped your experience now on death row? My faith is something that has taken some major cultivation over time. But it began, I, I was angry when I got to death row, and I think, you know, with good reason. And it took a very profound moment uh, of self-searching to really say, hey, you know, my past is exactly that now. And I have this opportunity to kind of just, you know, shake myself and, you know, get up and, and walk to meet whatever God put in my path. And fortunately, he put some really great people in my path. The mentors that I've been looking for in school appeared on death row of all places. And the first one was a guy, Father Dan, who used both the prodigal son and Pascal's wager to kind of really get me back into Catholicism. And there were also maybe three or four really strong people around me, guys who were ultimately executed that helped me grow in my faith and, and really step up into this idea that even on death row, you can engage in endless patience, that there is such a thing as unconditional love and, and mercy. As I was able to grow into my faith, I took a more active interest in Catholic Mass on Thursdays, how it ultimately develops, but, you know, asking questions and really wanting to know more, not just about the afterlife, but how everyday life is lived, because I hadn't ever lived before. That was part of my whole problem on the, on the street, and I didn't know what it meant to live, and I had no idea that one, until it had been taken away from me, the, the type of freedom that you really do have out in the free world, and it doesn't necessarily end because you, you're confined. There's still a, a significant amount of freedom to become the person that you should have been from the beginning. And that's maybe the second lesson that I learned. Uh, a friend of mine, Harvey, he was one of my early mentors. He was Protestant, but he really showed me that, you know, even here on death row, that we all have value and that we have to remember that and to remind ourselves of that sometimes. And people like Harvey and people like Father Dan, who, who really showed me the way and showed me that, Prison is not the end. It's just a different kind of beginning. And it does not mean you give up. It means you, you work in earnest. You live in earnest. I love hearing that idea of this 
becoming the man that you're called to be even while you sit on death row. I'm sure that's something that most people don't even, doesn't even come into their consciousness probably that that kind of thing would happen. Unfortunately, people don't even think that way. As you probably know, people would even use the word monsters, right? If they presume that that's, you know, that's the kind of person that's going to be sitting on, a, on death row. But you've been there for 22 years. You didn't just mention Father Dan, you also mentioned Harvey. There are actually people who are prisoners alongside of you, who you have met, who you see as mentors, right? Do you want to share any stories, whether it's about yourself or about the people you have met in prison that help change people's mind and help them understand that these are human beings. These are not monsters. (laughs) These aren't people that are even defined by maybe one decision they might have made in their lives, but rather we are all human beings and help people understand that the humanity of everybody that you're in prison with. There is a, a friend of mine, he's still living, and he, he's an older guy. I think he's in his 60s now. He's an old black man and really not the kind of person that you expect to see in prison. He, you know, he's very quiet and thoughtful and introspective and has taught me a lot about this idea of social justice and what exactly that means. And it has been through his, his tutelage, certainly, JT is, is a man that has mentored me over the years in, in some subtle ways, but it's this idea that we can still be civilized, that we can still be human beings who have made mistakes, who are certainly flawed in our, our own individual ways and have idiosyncrasies, but that doesn't remove this idea that we are a part of civilization, that confinement, that Imprisonment is not this place where you become an animal because you lost, they lost you in a cage. And it, it's this lesson, I think, that a lot of people should take away from people who are incarcerated. That prison, a cage, does not make you less of a human being. It still means you're a human being, and it still means that there is this responsibility for people who are incarcerated. This idea that our humanity matters. And JT in in teaching me that has really helped me focus and and hone my own writing about that subject. You've lost at least, I read the book, Crimson Letters, that you're a co-author on that book, and you described at least one, anyway, friend that you lost, who was actually executed while you were there. What's the mood like? What is that experience like? It's like losing a family member. I've never lost a family member before. I I guess I should state that. Other than my grandparents, whom I was never really close to. But losing somebody you're close to who isn't family, I don't want to say that there is a difference. Because when you're on death row, you're around people all day, every day. You're around them more than you would be a family member. Because, you know, family members, they go away. They have their own place to live, their jobs, their lives. Here, we don't have other lives. We are each other's lives. So when that person is taken away from you and, and is put to death, it's hard. It's like it's losing a piece of yourself, especially if it's somebody that, that you've grown to know and, and to love. Probably the hardest execution for me was that of Earl Richmond. He was somebody who was really a great pillar for our community, somebody that everybody learned from like. And even if they didn't completely like him, they respected him. And that's, that's something you can't say a lot of, about a lot of people. Especially, and that's something 
nobody would really say about people on death row. So, you know, in our closed off world, Earl was somebody that everybody respected and to have him taken away from us, however justly the system claims it is, it's, it's one of those situations where you're at a loss. You find yourself having a void inside of you and you, you find ways to fill it. And sometimes there, there are no ways to fill it. And it, begin to understand that that is what death is about. There just are no ways to overcome it. You, you have to move on. There will always be that space there where that person was and, and how they impacted your life. I am really sorry just to hear what that must have been like to go through. So Lyle, if there's the people listening to this podcast, right, are typically mostly Catholics who are engaged and going to church every Sunday. They're generally concerned about various social issues, but they still might be a good percentage of them, unfortunately, who might think, as most of the population does, that people who are on death row must be among the worst in the population. I think you've just, this conversation has dispelled a lot of that, but nonetheless, what would you like to say, continue to say uh, in these last couple minutes to people who might have bad assumptions about people who are on death row to help them understand that we're all human beings and shouldn't be defined by any one thing we might have done. It would be to reiterate that we are all more than our worst mistakes, certainly. But I think the conversation needs to grow beyond this idea of just deserts that in talking about what people do or don't deserve, you fall into the trap of this false dichotomy that makes it an either-or proposition, and it doesn't even have to be that way. There are ways to punish people for crimes, and certainly murder should be punished as a crime, but there are, there are ways to do that without taking somebody's life and, and resorting to the old ideas of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I hesitate to use a Bible reference, but I, I can't help but think of one in reference to what we're talking about. And there's a passage in, in Luke. It's the only place in the Bible where this parable is, or this description of Jesus, Jesus's execution is talked about. And it's dealing with the two thieves who were being, excuse me, the two criminals who were being uh, executed with him. And one of them had said, well, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him and said, don't you have any fear of God? Because you're subject to the same condemnation. And Jesus is here to tell us, have mercy to, that he's here for our salvation. And the other criminal had said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I, I will. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's that idea of justice in those words that mercy is justice. And that if we extend that to everyone, then we are able to recognize their humanity. Thank you so much, Lyle, for your wisdom, really, and, and your insight. I think that everybody has benefited from hearing what you have to say. Where, where could we find your writings other than this book, of course, Crimson Letters, right? Are there other places the public can easily find your writings? Yes, you can find a lot of my writing on scalawagmagazine.org. Okay, very good. We'll, we'll make sure we put a link to that on the website as well. Any last things you want to 
you want to say before we go? Certainly. I, I thank you for this chance. You guys are able to stay safe during this COVID-19 pandemic and are not getting too stir crazy from the social distance. Thank you so much, Lyle. You have a great day. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website and view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholiccincinnati.org slash being-pro-life. Thank you again for joining us today, and I look forward to being with you next time.